0: Grab your Bibles, go to the Gospel of John. We're in this series called Belief Barriers. We're looking at eight kinds of people who, for whatever reason, couldn't believe. Eight different kinds of people who had what we're calling belief barriers. And to be honest, we're in the third group or third kind of person. You'll probably notice, I hope you notice, that Every single one of these affects every single one of us. That there's not one of these belief barriers that we all don't struggle with at some point in our lives. And oftentimes, all of them affect us. In the hopes of looking at these stories and praying through these belief barriers, we are hoping and praying that people are freed to see and follow the fullness of who God is through Jesus. And to be honest, we're seeing that. Many people coming forward with different areas in their lives where they're being freed from the barriers that keep them from fully following Jesus. Last week, we looked at, or two weeks ago, week one, we looked at religion. This is probably a very or, or, or most common of them, where are we get stuck in religion mode and it keeps us from really looking to Jesus for salvation. And then week two, the most culturally prevalent sexual immorality where Jesus says, come, drink, and be truly satisfied. And then this third week, I believe is probably the most subversive in our church or in churches all over the world. And before we get into this, I know that there are probably some of you who are thinking, yeah, I like the series, Andy, I get it, we're going through the Gospel of John, we're looking at these belief barriers, but I don't know if this really applies to me, because I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I may struggle in these different areas, but I I already believe in who Jesus is is. I think you're going to see that probably for this third category, being the most subversive, it's the most challenging. I know that it is in a lot of ways in my life, the most challenging. Culturally in churches, this creeps in silently into people's hearts and minds and has the potential to draw them away from fully following or understanding what it means to follow Jesus. This third category I call the nearsighted group. Andres Kossenberger in his commentary says, Christian growth is essentially learning to believe the gospel, to really believe it in a biblical sense, which means to lean all of your weight upon Jesus. This is what scholars would say the word believe really means in the gospel of John, to put all of your weight, all of your trust, all of your belief in who Jesus is. There's a significant difference between believing that a plane will take you from A to B. This past week, we flew down to LA to load Sydney up and bring her home after her freshman year of college. We we put all of our weight on the plane. I can believe that the plane will take me from A to B but there's something significantly different than actually getting on the plane. If you just believe it'll take you from A to B, that's one thing. This is what the nearsighted Christian or follower does. They believe Jesus will take them from A to B, but they never fully put their trust in Jesus. So the sermon outline is simple. We're going to give a simple definition of nearsighted. I'm going to give you a self-test, a simple question to ask to see if you're stuck in this category. Then I'm going to show you it in Scripture, John chapter 6, and then, and, then, and then one simple question. Nearsighted in its basic definition, you can look this up is a common vision condition in which you can see objects nearer to you clearly, but objects that are farther away are blurry. You see, the nearsighted person doesn't understand their real problem, and since they don't understand the real problem, the real issue, they don't see the real solution. A nearsighted person has good intentions. You see, we see this playing out in our culture through social action. It's good. Social action is good. Wanting to end world hunger. Stop the slave trade. Those are good things. Or put an end to our modern day Holocaust, known as abortion. Those are good things. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But the nearsighted person sees those as the grand mission. Jesus does not see those as the grand mission. I know that may be surprising, but you're gonna be able to walk through John chapter six with me and see the grand mission that Jesus came for. The mission of Jesus In the nearsighted person is secondary because they don't understand the real problem in their heart and in humanity. A couple years ago, we were doing a series called Tough Questions. And we were asked a bunch of different questions and each of us at a different level went and talked about those from a biblical context. Off the record... I was asked the question if I only had one wish. Now this came off of and from a student who was with me in L.A. at Mosaic Church where they were doing a tough questions and the pastor was asked this same question. So this student was in a way trying to pin me in to see what my answer was. If you only had one wish, what would it be? What's the one thing that you would wish for if you had only one wish? It was Erwin Raphael McManus who answered this question in L.A., And he said, you may think that it would be end-world hunger, or poverty, or disease. But if I focused on one of those things, then it wouldn't change the world. Matter of fact, those things would only come back later and stronger. The one wish would be new hearts. You Change the heart change not just the temporal world, you impact eternity. How do you know that you may be stuck in this belief barrier? Son of a church, listen. I don't want to guilt you into following Jesus. It's not why I'm here. But those of you who know me, I'm also not here to play church. I'm not. And I want you to hold me accountable to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. I believe, I trust, I wrestle. And so as I ask this question, I know that right out of the gate, people are going to go, oh, uncomfortable. And I'm not sorry. This is how you know you're in this group. And I want to go back to what I said in the beginning. We are all in this group in some way, shape, or form. The scriptures reveal truth to us, and then we have to respond. How do you know you're in this group? You're kind of bored with Jesus. You don't hate him. I mean, he's good. He's your, he's your homeboy. you got the t-shirt. Jesus is my homeboy. If you have that shirt, it's okay. <laughs> I saw that shirt the other day. Maybe you have the bumper sticker. You don't hate him but you're not overflowing with love and passion. You're not consumed by what the scriptures say are the two crucial emotions of somebody who is not nearsighted, but fully committed to following Jesus. The uh, emotions of, listen, two of them. Fierce hatred You see, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're wrestling with the truth about who he is, you're not just nearsighted. You get there's this emotion, this fierce hatred for sin and this consuming love for grace for God. This is scriptural. This is biblical. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12. Write that down and go read these words for yourself. Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be genuine, real, authentic. Don't act or play the game. Abhor. This word means be horrified with with what is evil. Abhor what is evil. Contrary to God's will, his desires. We we are set apart, church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're set apart from the world. You should abhor the evil that's in this world. Hold fast, cling to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. See if you can see these two or feel these two or sense these two emotions as I read these words. Let, uh, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Don't be lazy in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You see, the nearsighted person doesn't see any of this. They only see close up what is valuable to them. And most of the time, no, all the time, for the nearsighted person, all of us, it's our desires, our wants, our likes, our interests, and what catches our attention. I remember experiencing this nearsighted emotion and missing the big picture when we were in Israel. Man, I couldn't wait to go to Israel. I couldn't wait to see the land where Jesus walked. I couldn't wait to try and walk on the Sea of Galilee. It didn't work. But I couldn't wait to be there. And then our tour took a detour, and I didn't want to go on the detour. I wanted to be where Jesus was, and we were going into Egypt. And then we drove forever south. You had to get a whole new tour bus, a whole new guide, a whole new land. We were told by everybody, it's not safe, don't go there. So we were full of fear. We were so nearsighted, we wanted our comfort and our joy. And so I pouted. I pouted the whole way across the border. I pouted in the car. The whole, Heidi was yelling at me. I, all the way down south, a six-hour drive or whatever, I don't even remember. And then we started hiking in this dumb canyon. I didn't want to be there, I didn't like it. I wanted to be, what really mattered to me is to be where Jesus was. I was nearsighted. Two miles, we walked in this canyon. And then pow, we came and whoa, I was a fool. The most spectacular thing I have ever seen in my life, Petra. TV and pictures do it no justice. It's like you come out and the nearsightedness is decimated to this structure on the side of a mountain that is spectacular. You see, this nearsighted group in John 6 can't see beyond their own nose. They're missing the Petra of eternal life. And all they can see is temporal, physical. They don't get the eternal, spiritual. You're going to see that they're looking for a prophet who teaches new philosophy, a life coach to give them some new way of fulfilling their hopes and dreams. Better tips for living. You're going to see that all they get is offended by what Jesus has to say. They don't want to see that they're not all in. And Jesus says, you're either all in or you're all out. There's no in-between. Nearsightedness is unbelief. And Jesus would make it clear to these people, they either believe in him or they don't. Following Jesus, brothers and sisters, is not like going to hometown buffet. (laughs) You don't get to pick and choose what parts of Jesus and Christianity you want, leaving the tomatoes and the vegetables. If you're wondering the tomato, you can leave. Was following him, underline this, because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. I know you know somebody who's sick. I know you may be sick. Jesus is healing people. They're following him because they want something. And it's a good something. It's not a bad something. Jesus went up to the mountain. And there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the pas- now it was Passover. The feast of the Jews was at hand, lifting up his eyes Then, seeing the large crowd that was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Look at this. He said this to test them. (laughs) He's testing them. Why is he doing that? Well, because Jesus knew what he was going to do. For he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 200 denarii, eight months wages, is not enough. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, some of you may be listening to this story right now and similar to myself, being flashback to Sunday school and the flannel graph, (laughs) two fish and some boards and 5,000 people. There's this boy, he has five barley loaves, two fish. But what are they for so many? They're not gonna feed 5,000 people. Jesus said, have the people sit down. That's the last thing you want them to do. Jesus says, sit down. Have them sit down. There was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now in those days, typically in the culture, you counted the head of the family, the head of the house. This could have been, with women and children, up to 20,000. But we know for sure there were at least 5,000 in account. There was two fish and five Buns. <laughs> it's not going to work. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Wow. Nearsighted. Nearsighted. This is the prophet who's come into the world? Just fed 5,000 people. Why do I say nearsighted? Well, because Jesus, verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountainside by himself. He's the prophet. Jesus isn't being shy here. That's not what we see. He's avoiding disaster. He doesn't want to feed nearsightedness. He doesn't want people to lose sight or fall into the belief barrier that will keep them from seeing the real reason why he came. He's got something even more important, and they can't see it. You see, their mindset is, as Jesus is our king, we're going to take him. He perceived they are going to take him and make him king. They would never be hungry again. They wouldn't have to worry about food. They would be healed from their illnesses. They could march right into Jerusalem, overthrow the Romans, and establish the ultimate social welfare state. He withdrew by himself. Nope, that's not the agenda. That's not what we're about. That's not why I have been sent. Jesus refused to be forcibly made king on their selfish, unrepentant, nearsighted terms. And then, verse 16 through 29, set the stage for Jesus to have a discussion to point them, to open up their sight to see the real reason why he came this discussion about the bread of life. This discussion, by the way, broken into two sections, reveals a stark contrast between true and false disciples. The first story illustrates the response the true disciples have towards Jesus. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and came nearer to the boat. They were frightened. But he said to them, underline this, it is I do not be Afraid. It is I do not be afraid. When Jesus reached the boat, he made a claim, he made a declaration Ego, I me, I am. that's a big deal I am God he's making a declaration of divinity and then he follows it with a short command literally stop fearing I'm God stop fearing and then they responded verse 21 then they were glad to take him into the boat They were glad, circle that word, to take him, take him, circle those words. Fellow means they're willing. They willingly received him. Received is this word lambano. They gladly and immediately accepted him, trusted him, believed. The fear was gone. He stepped into the vessel, and immediately, they were at their destination. John offers no explanation or comment. Presumably, the point is clear. True followers of Jesus respond with adoration and a heart of worship before the I am. They receive willingly, freely. The second story goes back to this crowd that he just fed in verses 1 through 15. This crowd sought Jesus for another meal. That was amazing. Can you believe? I'm hungry again. Let's go find him. But this story reveals how false disciples respond to the Lord when they're nearsighted. You see, both groups saw Jesus perform a supernatural miracle, but each respond entirely different. Verse 22, he begins to con- this discussion on the bread of life. The next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Were they seeking Jesus, or are they just hungry for more food? When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them with, Amen, amen. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Truly, truly. When you see truly, truly here, it underscores the significance In the language on what is said right after, Jesus is getting ready to set the stage. He's like, okay, listen, seriously, pay attention here. I'm gonna say something. You're asking me when I came here and what was going on. I'm gonna, truly, truly. I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. They're so nearsighted by their superficial desire for food and miracles that they miss the true spiritual significance of who Jesus is and his mission and why he's there. Verse 28, he goes on, Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give to you for on him god the father has set his seal jesus is going to get a little bit theological here so, so get ready for what he's getting ready to say because this is for some of us if not all of us can be really hard to grapple with the father has set his seal on him then they said to him what must we do To be doing the work of God. What what social action? What do we got to be a part of? Hey, tell us. We want to do it. And Jesus answered him, this is the work of God that you believe, that you put all of your weight, all of your trust, all of your life in Jesus. Thank you. Amen. The word amen means so let it be true. It is true that you believe in him who he has sent. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do? Oh man, they're nearsighted. And to be honest with you, I would probably be saying the same thing in this story. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? How about feeding 5,000 people? Listen, this is important. John Calvin, in regards to this, these few verses, says that this is a wicked question that shows the truth from what was said elsewhere. He's referencing Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. The wicked and adulterous generation ask for a miraculous sign. And then Jesus responds and continues with four theological or crucial theological corrections in where they're misunderstanding. So I'm going to make these real quick. I'm going to read 31 through 33, and then I'm going to show you these four theological corrections that Jesus marks them with. Our fathers ate manna, they said. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, seriously, listen, pay attention. I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. And the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, this had to rattle their ears. He gives these four power statements to correct them. Power statement number 1, it was not Moses who gave them bread from heaven. It was God the Father. They're missing the point on who was the provider. Exodus 16:4, the Lord said to Moses, behold I will rain bread from heaven. It wasn't from Moses. Number 2, the manna was not true bread from heaven. Jesus corrects them. He told them my Father now gives you true bread from heaven. The present tense of the word gives, the domi, indicates the true bread was not the manna from the past. It was the Father It was what the Father was currently giving. He uses this word true, "alethinos," "alethinos," meaning genuine or real. The manna, or the bread supplied by God, was merely, in the Old Testament, a foreshadow of the ultimate true bread, which comes down out of heaven. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the bread of eternal life. The manna, number three, gave physical life in the Old Testament, but the bread of God brings eternal life through Jesus. All throughout John's gospel, the word zoe means life. It refers not to physical or Temporal life, but eternal life that only comes through Jesus. He's not talking about temporal sustenance and food, and he uses words to help them understand this is much bigger than your nearsighted need right now. And number four, this rocked them. The bread of life that Jesus is talking about is for everyone, not just the Jews. bread of life from heaven is for everyone. God offers salvation through Jesus Christ to all who believe, regardless of where, they're come, where they come from, their nation, their nationality, their ethnic background. So how did they respond to this theological shellacking? They said, sir, give us this bread Always. Okay, I stop because it's so important to, to explain what I think are two imperative pillars of the gospel. And these two pillars are kryptonite to nearsightedness. They are kryptonite to this belief barrier. The first crucial word is the word God. The true gospel's primary focus is reconciliation back to God. Jesus is not, Jesus would not let his ministry become primarily about ending temporal needs, world hunger, or a prosperity for all. Those are important, and they're worthy, but our problem runs much deeper than anything that we could fix with just filling our stomachs or clothes on our back, or education in our brains, even justice in our governments. There's a deeper issue. We need to be reconciled back to God, and no social reform reconciles us back to God. It's the wrong mission. Just look at history. History. 19th century social reformer who coined the term cognitive bargaining. Beatrice Webb wrote this in her diary in 1890. I stake everything on the essential goodness of human nature. People are inherently good. And so if we just put them in good social environments, they'll be better. And then she writes this, 35 years later, I realize now how permanent the evil and instinct and impulses in us, that mere social machinery will never change. Hearts transformed by the gospel, new hearts put in, hearts of stone taken out, and there is only one person that can do that Jesus Christ himself the way you can tell the true gospel from a false gospel the true gospel is about God that's the primary aim reconciliation back to the creator the focus of all hope is God The focus of all affection is God. It was John Piper who said the gospel is not a way of getting people into heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a way of getting people to God. And when you get people to God, you bring heaven to earth. Speaking candidly for a second, this is why I hate the prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel. I've seen its effects in Africa. I've seen its effects in the inner city of San Francisco and LA and in Mexico, this prosperity gospel that says, come to God and get stuff. You don't need stuff, you need God. God is not a means to your better end. God is the end, that's it. This is why I do not like and oppose a social gospel. I know this may offend some. Social justice is not a biblical term. We can talk in depth about that, but I only have three more hours. <laughs> you see, this is the big curse of the belief barrier of nearsightedness. You replace a social agenda with something eternal. You wanna end this social thing, new hearts. Jesus came to fix that which is broken. This rich Hebrew word, "takun alam" to fix what is broken. We can't fix it. Jesus is the only one. Our generation is driven by by causes, and and they're good. I'm not downplaying this. I'm just downplaying them as the center of Christ's mission into the world. That's what I'm downplaying. We have a generation of cause-driven companies, companies giving back. Everybody's got a cause, and these, these are good. They're just not great. You buy a pair of Tom's shoes and you give a pair of Tom's shoes. That's a good thing. But Jesus came to save Tom's soul. By the way, Tom's not the owner of Tom's shoes. He came to save Tom's soul, not his shoes, no pun intended. Sorry. That wasn't in my notes either. We want to alleviate suffering in this world. As a church... In our ministries, our communities, we partner with Omar. We partner with those in Mexico, and Africa, and local. We want to end suffering, but most significant is we want to end eternal suffering. This is the mission we're joining God in. This isn't our mission. The second word is grace. God is a pillar of the gospel being reconciled back to him. This keeps us from being nearsighted, but also grace keeps us from being nearsighted. This is a crucial word in understanding the gospel. The true gospel centers on what God has done for us, not what we do for him. This is so important. Listen, if you have received God's grace, it fuels you to extend that grace to somebody else. This is what it does. You can't just say, Oh, I got the gift of grace. I'm going to go to heaven and then sit on the couch and watch TV. That's not the gospel. You're missing it. You're nearsighted. You can watch TV, but that's not the center of your life. <laughs> watch TV isn't a sin. You receive grace that moves the believer to social action so you feed. You take care of widows and orphans. You care for the refugee with the hope that you build a relationship that will lead them to the bread of life. This is what Jesus is saying to this group of people. It fuels us. Verse 35, we're halfway through. Sorry. Sorry. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. About ten years ago, I was in a conversation with a young man who came to me and says, Andy, I just don't believe. I've got too many questions. All right, well, let's get together. I'm like, Great. So he asked me a question. I answer it, and I'd say, does that make sense? And I'll go, yeah, do you believe that? Yeah, oh, that makes sense. Then you ask him the next question. Does that make sense? I can unpack that more. We're 15, 16 questions in. And finally I realize, no, no, he's not going to, be- he's already made up his mind. You see, the skeptic hasn't already made up his mind. He will go and he'll pursue the evidence. He asks the question he wants to believe. But unbelief that is already defined or decided in a person is completely different. The unbelief in a person is never, when they've made that decision, is never satisfied, no matter how much evidence is given. Luke 16.31 says this. It says that those who reject the truth of God's word will, I quote, will not be persuaded even if someone raises from the dead. That was Luke 16, 31. You can fact check it. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me will never be cast away. We see the goodness and the grace and the sovereignty of God recorded here. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, Jesus says, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. The will of the Father, he sent his Son to prove who he was, and to give eternal life. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread of life, came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? See, they're still focused on the physical. They can't see the spiritual. This is what nearsightedness does. Jesus answered them. Do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws. Helko is the Greek word. Draws. This is a violent word. It's a violent word that means to drag. Because you and I are born in our sin nature. We don't develop our sin nature. And the Father has to drag us out of our sin nature to the Son. It's this word that takes on the form of kicking and screaming. And I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except he who is from God He has seen the Father. Verse 44, we get another truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, whoever puts all their life, all their weight, fully committed, has eternal life. I am the bread of life. The fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So the one may eat of it, and not die. I am the bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give, that I will give for the life of the word is my flesh. The world is my flesh. Years ago, I, saw, I was listening to a pastor preach on this. And in my notes, I wrote down what he said about the five similarities between physical eating and spiritual eating. I think they'll be beneficial. I'm going to go through them very quickly. He said this, just as food is useless unless it is eaten, so also spiritual truth does no good if it's not digested. Merely knowing the truth without acting on it profits nothing. He said eating is driven by hunger. You notice this. It's the same with spiritual hunger. Those who are full are not interested in food. In the same way, sinners who are gratified with their sin have no hunger for spiritual things, But when God awakens us from nearsightedness and our lost connection with him, we hunger for forgiveness. We hunger for deliverance. We hunger for peace, for joy, for hope that only comes from the bread of life. Number three, food. The food that people eat become part of them through the body's digestive system. The same happens spiritually. People may admire Christ, impressed by his teaching, mourn his death, but until they fully believe, fully trust by faith, it's then that they become one with him. Paul says, In Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in me, the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The fourth similarity between physical eating and spiritual eating is eating involves trust, right? You ever go somewhere and eat something, you're just like, I'm not sure about that. No one knowingly eats, tainted or spoiled food, unless it's a youth (laughs) all-nighter. The metaphor of eating the bread of life implies believing and trusting fully in Jesus. And number five, listen, eating spiritually is personal. It's personal. No one can eat a meal for somebody else, and that's gross. (laughs) Psalm 49 says, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give God a ransom for him. My believing doesn't save my kids. It doesn't save my wife. My believing doesn't save you. This is personal to me. Please believe. It's personal. Verse 52, we're going to keep going. I'm going to go a little long. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how? Can this man give us this flesh to eat? So Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son and drink his blood, this may sound a little weird. Hang, in, hang with me here. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. He's saying eating is equivalent to believing. Now, some denominations, some faiths will say this is support for a theological term called transubstantiation, where when you take the communion, it actually turns into the blood and the bread, we don't believe that. It's not supported in the Scripture. And this statement in these words aren't the same words used in regards to how we do communion, found in Corinthians. Jesus is continuing the metaphor and the understanding that believing in Him is fully trusting in His blood and His sacrifice to forgive you of sin. He's saying these words I'm speaking are eternal life. These are hard things. All in or all out. Verse 60, when when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Is it the Spirit who gives life? You don't understand because you're nearsighted. You're looking at the physical. I'm talking about the spiritual. You're still thinking physically eat me? No. This is a metaphor of for belief. The Spirit, verse 53 who gives life. Flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there were some of you who do not believe. It says, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and those who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted by him, granted him by the Father. Verse 66, this is where I wanted to get. After this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Not all disciples, quote, disciples are true believers. That's what verse 66 shows us. But all true believers are disciples, they're all in, they follow. They help others follow. They're devoted to finding and helping people follow Jesus. New Testament commentary puts it this way. False disciples do not follow Christ because of who he is. I'm sorry. False disciples do not follow Christ because of who he is, but because of what they want from him. They have no problem viewing him as baby in the manger at Christmas, social reformer with broad Message of love and tolerance, the ideal human everyone should emulate, a source of health, wealth, and worldly happiness, but they are unwilling to embrace the biblical Jesus, the God man who fiercely rebuked sinners and warned them of eternal hell, and that salvation and that salvation from that hell comes only through believing in Jesus. And Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know, this is personal, that you are the Holy One of God. We see In Peter's statement, two crucial marks of faithful followers of Jesus. The first one is their faithfulness, even when it gets hard, they don't walk away. He says, Lord, where should we go? This is a mark of character. And then he says, we have believed. This is faith. This is the mark of spiritual birth. the initial faith of true disciples results in continued commitment and loyalty to Christ verse 70. Then Jesus said to them, did I not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot for he, one of the 12 was going to betray him. Unlike the false disciples, who had made a final decision to abandon Jesus, the 12th, except for Judas, had made a permanent pledge, all their weight, all their trust, fully devoted to follow. In this story, John contrasts the blunt difference between those who are fickle and those who are faithful. What's your greatest need? What is, what is your greatest need? Most people will admit at some point in life they need something. And, and the something will reveal the type of Savior that will provide that something. People struggle with loneliness. They want companionship. People suffer from an identity crisis. They want to find meaning. People suffer from hunger. They want a provider. Oppressed. They want deliverance. The crucial need for every single one of us is the need for salvation from the crisis of sin in our heart and in our life. So friends and family, as we close, do you believe all your weight that Jesus is the bread of life? All of your life. That his words bring eternal life? We're going to close. I'm going to invite you to stand right now. We're going to close by singing a classic song, How Great Thou Art. The focus is, is to to take your eyes off yourself and see how great God is. And if you're struggling with being all in, do not leave here today without doing business with God, without Mm -hmm. fully putting all your weight and trust in Him. I'm not huge on altar calls, but I am huge on people defining a moment and making a decision. And so we're going to sing this song, and if you feel God moving in your heart, and you're like, man, you know what? I've been nearsighted. I'm missing the point. I need Christ to forgive me. We want to pray with you. We want to help you. We want to connect you with somebody or a group of somebody that will help you follow Jesus. So towards the middle, the end of this song, if that's you, just come on down to the front. We'll have people here that are ready to pray with you, answer your questions, and help you take that next step and being fully committed to following Jesus. I want you to focus your attention on the words of this song, How Great God Is.